The following sermon was delivered by Natalie Owens Pike, Director of Ministry to the Online Campus, in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here's Natalie Owens Pike. This morning at Fifth Avenue, we continue our fall sermon series, Detectives of Divinity. We are studying from now until Thanksgiving the role that wonder plays in the life of our faith. We've reflected on stories from scripture in which communities and people suddenly find themselves standing in the presence of God. And then we've been looking at the world and our own lives through that same lens. Because awe, we've been saying, opens up a doorway to the divine. And each of these doorways lends to us a different perspective. Last week, Reverend Scott Black Johnston considered the ways that acts of moral goodness we share, and the simple but powerful word, nevertheless, can anchor us in hope. And this week, wild awe is what directs our attention as we look for the glory in God's creation, where we feel our hearts opening to connect to the one who delights in us. And to help us open to the wild awe around us, we turn to a selection from the book of Job, who points us in the midst of his profound loss toward the wisdom beyond just our human knowledge. In this text of the Hebrew Bible, Job wrestles with God and with wisdom teachings of his time about the purpose of suffering and God's role in the presence of evil in the world. And so at this time in our hurting world when suffering and loss feel close at hand, I invite you now to listen for the word of God. But ask the animals and they will teach you. The birds of the air and they will tell you, ask the plants of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of every human being. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The story of Job starts with his righteousness. Verse after opening verse describes how Job is so upright in his living, so successful that he lives a life beyond reproach, easily praising God. He credits God with the blessings in his life until God makes Job the subject of a wager of sorts against God's adversary. I use the term God's adversary here following uh, the Hebrew Bible scholar Robert Alter. You may know this translation of this Hebrew word as the word Satan. Robert Alter makes this distinction for a few reasons. The Hebrew here actually says ha-satan. Ha is the definite article, which indicates that the adversary here serves a function 
as an obstacle or a barrier to one's purpose, but is not a proper noun like a name. But still, God and God's adversary want to know. How will God's faithful respond to the duress of loss and pain? Will they honor and follow God? So Job, being tested, loses first his livelihood, and then all ten of his beloved children. Next, he loses his health, and with it, his community standing as painful sores show up as visible reminders of the tests that he's experiencing and set him apart. And finally, painfully, after three of his friends travel from afar to sit with him in mourning for seven days, Job loses their confidence and their support for him too. They rise from the dust of his mourning to question his righteousness and argue with his grief. In what has been called some of the most beautiful and complex poetry in the entire Hebrew Bible, Job argues right back and argues too with God. All of this results in as tender and urgent of questions that we as humans might pose to our creator. Why, God, would you allow this suffering? Is it you, God, who causes this pain? Do you test us, God, with the burdens we carry? Do the burdens of my neighbor reflect your anger with him? So this verse we read today, imagining the life of everything and the breath of every being held in the hand of the Lord, is spoken by a man who is utterly bereft, thick with irony as he's cursing the traditional wisdom of his friends who tell him good things happen to good people. Or Put another way, as I've been asked in pastoral visits, in hospital rooms, and in church offices, and even on Zoom, why do bad things happen to good people? Job feels deeply the mockery of the platitudes of his friends and the paradox of a God who holds us every life in their loving hand and and yet, those lives, these lives do experience trauma no loving God would inflict on her creation, right? Is this the nature of things? Job seems to be asking, incredulous, angry, having hoped it wasn't true. So Job points us to the natural world to see about the birds and the sea and even the plants and to use the power and the majesty of God's natural world to express his own agony. So let us turn to the nature of things. I have been taught by wild awe my whole life, raised on nature walks with my parents who taught me the names of birds and plants in our Minnesota state parks. I know well that there are teachers greater than our own experience all around us, who bring us closer in interconnectedness to a deeper connection with the divine. Ask the birds of the air 
Job says, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. And on the cover of your bulletin today, you'll see an underwater cathedral formed by natural forces of erupting lava met over time by cool ocean water. It sits about 70 feet underwater in the Hawaiian island chain. And if you squint, you can see how this lava cavern also filters light through openings, almost like our stained glass windows, drifting down onto the altar rock in the center. There we might hear what the fish of the sea have to declare to us. And though I did not take this picture, I do scuba dive and I have been to this place. And uh, if you're not already spending enough time contemplating the smallness and fragility of your human body in the context of the vastness that is our great world, may I suggest that you take a tiny boat over some very choppy waves to the middle of the open ocean where you can hop off the side of that tiny boat and then sink slowly into the water in your weighted scuba gear into the vast expanse that is our ocean where you're tethered only to your life source by some thin hoses that you watched a very distracted young person fiddle with a few minutes before. And now you're thinking to yourself, did they really check them all? Because there was a lot going on on that tiny little boat and it's getting very dark and blue down here. But just as you've come to the point in your dive when you're contemplating your odds of ever resurfacing again, you see hulking below you the reason why you're here. The open metal hull of a sunken ship covered now in algae and streaming seaweed and hundreds of bright and tiny fish. It was dropped here on purpose to serve as a nursery to coral and all manner of animal things which transform a wreckage into shelter and needed habitat. But all well and good as that may be, personally I prefer to stay on the outside of the slowly eroding sunken shipwreck. So I just drifted nearby, which is where I spotted her. An eight-legged, swooping, elegant, sneaky, cautious, big-brained octopus the size of my own head, shuffling by on the ocean floor below. Was she carrying something? I got closer, slowly, to see that indeed this octopus had one tentacle hooked inside of a large conch shell, dragging it towards an empty metal box that was once a part of the ship nearby. I watched, floating, reminding myself to breathe in and out slowly as she slipped inside the opening of the box and tipped the conch shell over her head, over the top of the box, using the metal edge of the box as a lever, as a simple tool, her arm emerged victorious, holding only the large sea snail for a snack. How smart is that? How alike to us in their big-brained tool use but the scuba diver and biologist and philosopher Peter Godfrey Smith would say, don't use the word smart. 
I'll let you say behaviorally complex or sensitive animals who experience their lives in a rich way. They explore, they fiddle, but he cautions us against intellectualizing them. In his book, Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind, he studies the evolution of consciousness within ocean creatures, such as shrimp and hermit crabs and octopus, and what their mind-body behavior can teach us about our own. But I read his book frustrated because I did not want the facts about how their bilateral brains function or that their arms hold 80% of their nervous system. I wanted to know what an octopus is experiencing when we see each other underwater. How an octopus is like me underwater. When did the hunk of rusting metal in the octopus's life become a tool, not just an excellent place to hide? Was there, dare I say it, a moment of wonder, of awe in that big cephalopod mantle of theirs, an aha moment that zapped down each of the 10 million nerve endings in each of those eight arms? Godfrey cites other witnesses of this kind of tool use in octopus and calls it improvised or opportunistic even. And yet, I can't imagine eating them now. My octopus observing underwater heart wants to lean earnestly into Job's call in our scripture to listen to the fish of the sea and leave you here, saying, hey, how cool is that, what we learn from the octopus? God's creatures, big and small, they play like us, they problem solve like us. Doesn't that just open up your heart to the rest of creation? But I remember what I learned of Job's hard-won irony that he lifts up these fish of the sea to answer because he feels God is silent. Because of the insufficient response of his friends who tell him he deserves the suffering that has broken open his life. Job tells us, does not the ear test words as the palate tests food? So too, let us test, let us turn from our well-meaning platitudes, our well-worn cliches, and agree that in wild awe, we find something far greater than our similarities to our animal kin. We find that if it's possible for me to find connection with something as different from me as a creature with eight arms who breathes underwater no tubes, then how could I possibly imagine separation between me and my neighbor, no matter how different we are? I wonder why it is easier for us to assign humanity to the dancing, playful, working arms of an octopus than our fellow human we disagree with our fellow passenger on the subway, our fellow community member we stand in imagined competition against, whose pain we rank our own against, whose story we assume we know. But it is in awe that we can find connection 
to the social fabric around us as we share a sensation greater than our individual experience. When we share that heart opening, ooh, that goosebumps moment, we're literally sinking up in our physiology as well. Our bodily systems align collectively in our cells and their functions. Studies show that people listening to the same piece of music or viewing the same transcendent art sync up in their breathing rates, their heartbeats, even in their hormones. We are tuning into each other through shared experience. We're doing it right now, having just listened to the glory of this incredible choir and our musicians. Do you feel it? You might be skeptical of this, and that's okay. Dr. Keltner, whose book on awe has sparked our sermon series this fall, completed his research precisely because of our human tendency to doubt this glorious fact, unless we are faced with neuropsychological studies using evidence-based double-blind research, which he has completed. But we can push past our doubt and our separateness, and together go looking for awe. We can work this instinct to be connected in our delight and surprise like a muscle until we learn to view each other through the lens of communal action and experience. And friends, we must, because when we do, we see our neighbor as ourselves. We feel our neighbor as ourselves. It's much harder to be numb when you are experiencing awe. Because yes, awe does not always come to us through beauty. We can be brought into the presence of something bigger than ourselves in times of fear and despair, in the hospital room, in the shipwreck. But Job shows us he does not ignore his pain. For sometimes it is in the ash of the death of what came before that we find the spark of new life. Later in the service today, our response of faith will turn us to the end of the book of Job, 30 chapters later, when after trials seemingly too great to endure, God restores Job's fortunes and blesses him with a new family. Job turns from his sarcasm, his mocking of God, to praise God's wisdom, previously beyond his understanding. Now, not every story ends with the restoration of life, but that is the against all odds hope of our faith that we listen for the promise of God's love even when God is silent. Speaking instead, hearing instead through the voices God has given us to say to each other. I am here, my arms outstretched. Turning to our friend with eight arms, 
We can observe in their working together in the octopus a collaborative and yet independent kind of co-working. And our philosopher and scuba diver Peter Godfrey Smith wonders, how do all eight relate to each other, arm to arm to arm to head? Do they operate on some sort of autopilot or does a central consciousness in the head of the octopus control each one? Or are they communicating somehow one to the other and bypass a central nervous system at all? Each tentacle moves along with its own agency and Godfrey Smith compares this to our own human moments of autopilot in our body function. We breathe continuously, but sometimes we become more aware of that effort to breathe. Yet, when the octopus needs to move quickly, to escape or to hunt or to feed its basic needs, all eight arms are recruited to propel the octopus along. To Godfrey Smith, these eight interconnected and yet independent octopus arms help us to reimagine our own individual subjectivity. Our ability to be both whole selves and also part of a sum that is greater than each of us. This is what Job hopes for when he says the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind are in the palm of God's hands. Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, a geographer, Cooney professor, and prison abolitionist says it this way, if life is precious, life is precious. All life, every life. We are called to show that type of reverence to each other. We can be for each other the promise Job longs to hear of God in his suffering. We can be the answer when our friends and our neighbors sit in the dust of their lives to say, where is God in this? We can say, I am here. I am with you. I see you where it hurts. Not to fix it, not to be God, not to say it'll get better soon but to say, I will sit in this dust and this dirt with you for as long as you need. Sifting through the ashes to piece together a new way forward. Arm in arm in arm in arm in arm. Amen. As you go, take with you this benediction. May we take each opportunity for awe. Arm in arm, help us to know we are not complete in you, O oh God, without each other. And may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.